When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Did you know? A few weeks before Jet Set Radio's North American release as Jet Grind Radio, Sega hosted a contest in San Francisco called Graffiti is Art. The contest aimed to promote graffiti as art rather than vandalism. Willie Brown, mayor of San Francisco at the time, attempted to shut the event down by revoking Sega's permits. Unfortunately for them, Sega of America had acquired all of its permits to host the competition through entirely legal methods, and it went off without a hitch, receiving over 130 entries. While Jet Set Radio's gameplay primarily involved skating, graffiti was an integral part of it from the beginning. Masayoshi Kikuchi, the project lead on Jet Set Radio and art director Ryuta Ueda's previous project was Panzer Dragoon Saga for the Sega Saturn. After coming off such a hardcore fantasy title, Kikuchi said the team wanted to work on something completely unlike Panzer Dragoon, something dealing with pop culture. Ueda's initial concept art for Jet Set Radio led to the idea of a punky street kid wearing headphones rollerblading between people in a crowded town. From there, the team was inspired by the anti-establishment themes of the movie Fight Club. Jet Set Radio's graffiti tagging mechanic was a natural product of combining anti-establishment, the streets, and pop culture. Once the design was settled on, Jet Set Radio saw completion after only 10 months of development with a team of less than 25 people. Jet Set Radio takes place in Tokyo To, a vibrant interpretation of Tokyo, Japan. This was done so that the game's world was immediately recognizable and welcoming to a Japanese audience. Worried about how this would be received by Western audiences, Sega made some changes when localizing the game. The versions sent to North America and Europe featured two extra levels, Phantom Street and Grind Square, inspired by New York City and Times Square respectively. Phantom Street features a central street below an elevated rail system, a blacktop park, and several tightly packed tall buildings. While the level takes place during the day, its design, as well as its name being an anagram of Batman, hints that the level was based on Gotham City. In fact, there's an image of an unused poster hidden in the game's code featuring three shadowy characters and the words, Dark Man Returns. But perhaps due to copyright for a game called Dark Man already existing, the poster was modified. Lastly, the game also features a few tracks specific for the North American and PAL regions, such as the remix of Rob Zombie's Dragula, featured on Phantom Street. While the game's composer, Hideki Naganuma, composed most of the game's varied soundtrack, he also found various artists throughout Japan to contribute. Underground J-Rock group Guitar Vader contributed the songs Magical Girl and Super Brothers. Super Brothers appears to be a parody of the Super Mario Bros, as suggested by a part of the lyrics which follows... At the time, Sega and Nintendo were fierce competitors, making this a strange reference to Frame. However, since the song predates Jet Set Radio, it's unclear whether or not Naganuma chose the song for that reason or was even aware of it.
That's not it for soundtrack easter eggs either. In one of Naganuma's tracks titled Let Mom Sleep, a sample of the phrase, Will you stop playing that radio of yours? I'm trying to get to sleep, can be heard from an old British sitcom called Hancock's Half Hour. There are a couple fine touches that were made to Jet Set Radio's characters during development. Throughout the game, you'll receive messages from DJ Professor K, the DJ of the eponymous pirate radio station Jet Set Radio. There are unused designs still in the game's code that show the characters without their wrist gadgets, suggesting that the station was a late addition to the game's design. In the character Beats' early texture files, his shirt says Ereki, short for electricity, and featured a lightning bolt and light bulb logo instead of what exists today. Beat was also featured on the European pre-release box art of Jet Set Radio with six fingers on one of his hands, though this was fixed in subsequent official art. Despite being a much larger and more detailed game, Jet Set Radio Future took roughly the same amount of time to create and featured most of the same team members. The game was a launch title for the Xbox in Japan, a decision which appeared strange considering it was competing with Japanese consoles. Kikuchi chose to develop Future for the Xbox because the US market appeared to be more accepting of Jet Grind Radio than Japan was of Jet Set Radio. Jet Set Radio Future was created as a restructuring of the original instead of a sequel, as the developers didn't want to feel restricted by the previous game. Among a myriad of gameplay changes, the game's main miniboss, Captain Onishima, is replaced by Commander Hayashi. Though the characters are quite similar, there appears to be a weapon swap for Hayashi's in-game model which would replace his revolver with a katana. However, he is never actually shown wielding the sword. Jet Set Radio Future also pushed the amount of fake in-game branding with more flyers, in-game objects, and billboards, one of which hides a possible reference to Prince of Tennis. This billboard features a tennis player with dark blue sleeves and shorts and a white hat, closely resembling the outfits featured in Prince of Tennis. The billboard also says Contrail. This could thus be a reference to a musical single of the same name made by Chotaro Otori, a Prince of Tennis character who composes music in his spare time. There are a number of hidden easter eggs and odd occurrences in Jet Set Radio Future. Hidden in the GG's garage is this upright, old-style bullet train. It's unclear why this exists as it's hidden away in the game's level design, but if you observe the window at the top of the train, you'll see what appears to be a joke on the behalf of an artist. Kibokaoka Hill is a messy, crowded residential district. There are a large number of stray cats strewn throughout the level, including a small room hidden amongst the buildings filled with cats. Suspiciously, Kibokaoka Hill is also the level where you can unlock Potts, the GG's dog, as a playable character. Many of the levels in Jet Set Radio Future are inspired by and named after real places in Japan, despite not being direct recreations. Dogenzaka Hill, the first major level in the game, refers to a neighborhood in Shibuya, Tokyo, named after an Edo period bandit who renounced his ways and became a Buddhist monk. Perhaps more famously, it features a large number of antique stores and love hotels, which are short-stay hotels for couples seeking some additional amenities and privacy. Chuo Street refers to the main thoroughfare in Akihabara, a part of Japan famous for its shopping and classic gaming arcades, from which a massive Sega building is clearly visible. There hasn't been a new Jet Set Radio game since Jet Set Radio Future, but in 2006, Kuchu Entertainment created and proposed a concept for a new entry in the series to Sega. The untitled successor was planned for the Wii and would have brought back Beat, Gum, Tab, DJ Professor K, Poison Jam, and featured a new game called the Squabble Hawks. 
However, Sega was not interested in the concept and thus the game never came to be. Since the development team behind Jet Set Radio was reabsorbed into Sega in 2004, Kikuchi and Ueda have done major work together on the Yakuza franchise. Instead of joining them, Naganuma left Sega to pursue his own prospects, the latest of which include music for an upcoming game called Hover Revolt of Gamers, an open-world skating game largely inspired by Jet Set Radio. Did you know? Super Monkey Ball started out as one of Sega's Naomi Arcade cabinets, simply titled Monkey Ball. It contained all of the main stages found in Super Monkey Ball, but it lacked multiplayer and the playable character Gon Gon. It only had one master stage and utilized a banana-shaped joystick. The concept for the game was created by Amusement Vision, a branch of Sega led by studio head Toshihiro Nagoshi. Nagoshi wanted to move away from realistic simulators and develop a game that players could instantly understand. To achieve this, Nagoshi created a physics-based prototype that focused on rolling a ball through mazes. However, the game was quickly found to be visually unappealing, and the developers found it difficult to express the motion of the ball on a solid color round model. They even tried putting textures on the ball, but it didn't solve the problem. On a whim, Nagoshi put a monkey model previously designed by an unnamed female employee inside the ball. The entire team found it cute and appealing, and the concept stuck. After the addition of collectible bananas and some distinctive ears on the monkey, the physics prototype debuted as the 2001 arcade game Monkey Ball. The GameCube revamp of Monkey Ball, Super Monkey Ball, was notable for bettering the relationship between rivals Sega and Nintendo. Sega's Naomi arcade cabinets shared the same hardware architecture as the Dreamcast, making it easier to port games to the console. Monkey Ball was originally going to be ported to the Dreamcast, but this became impractical as the console was scheduled to be discontinued. Instead, Amusement Vision chose to release the game on the Nintendo GameCube, which they found easy to develop for. Nagoshi liked the features of the GameCube, and even joked out of the GameCube, PlayStation 2, and Xbox, Nintendo's console was the only one he didn't hate. When asked why Super Monkey Ball was imported to all six-generation consoles, Nagoshi said, From the developer's side, every hardware piece is very different, even though we use them to program similar video games. Last autumn, everyone was talking about what hardware is better to develop for, but in my point of view, GameCube seemed the most fun and interesting to develop games for. Additionally, from my point of view, I think the GameCube hardware will allow us to easily port our arcade titles. There was actually a third main series Super Monkey Ball game planned to be released on the GameCube, called Super Monkey Ball 3 Banana crazy. It was announced at E3 2003 and planned to be released the following year. The game was rumored to have LAN mode capable of supporting up to 8 players. Why Super Monkey Ball 3 was cancelled is unknown. The franchise is famous for its product placement with several games having real-world brands featured in them. In the original Monkey Ball, Super Monkey Ball 1, and Super Monkey Ball 2, Sega partnered with Dole to cover many of the game's models with their logo. This branding was removed in future games such as Super Monkey Ball Deluxe. The branding on the series Bananas was eventually replaced by a new company logo, Chiquita. Sega's affiliation with Chiquita was actually part of a larger deal. Along with the game's release, over 180 million Chiquita bananas featured special stickers promoting the game. The two companies also held a Super Bonanza sweepstakes, where a family could win a 50-inch TV, a Wii, the Wii Balance Board with Wii Fit Plus, and a copy of Super Monkey Ball Step and Roll. The main characters from the Super Monkey Ball series are arguably Ai-Ai, Mimi, and Baby. Rather than being simply alternate characters, Sega revealed that they are actually family members. It's not known for sure where Ai-Ai got his name. He does, however, share his name with a robot monkey in the Japanese version of Sonic the Hedgehog 2, which is called Coconuts in the English game. 
The series has other secrets. In Super Monkey Ball 2's beginner stage, Bumpy, there are small bumps throughout the stage that serve as obstacles. From above, the bumps are revealed to be Braille and read, Hi, this is Jamad. That's right, Braille Alphabet. I respect you. Jamad is most likely the nickname of Junichi Yamada, the game's stage design director. This isn't the only secret hidden in Super Monkey Ball 2's stages. In 1975, computer graphics researcher Martin Newell of the University of Utah created a mathematical model of his wife's teapot. His model became known as the Utah Teapot and is used extensively to test lighting and geometry in 3D scenes. The advanced extra stage in Super Monkey Ball 2 named Teapot is based on Newell's model. Another hidden detail relates to Super Monkey Ball 2's villain, Dr. Bad Boon. In the cutscenes for the game, the doctor seems to speak in gibberish. If each word in the audio is individually reversed, it becomes clear that he's speaking the actual lines in English, only backwards and slightly distorted. Even the manual for Super Monkey Ball holds an Easter egg. On the upper corners of the manual for Super Monkey Ball 1, a small image of Ai can be seen. If the manual is quickly flipped through, it is revealed to be a flipbook. Super Monkey Ball has been a major success for Sega. References to the series can be found everywhere, including other games. The World of Warcraft Super Simeon Sphere Trinket is an obvious reference to Super Monkey Ball. Upon using the trinket's ability, the player is transformed into a gorilla and surrounded by a purple ball for five minutes. Hyperdimension Neptunia also has a reference to Super Monkey Ball. The in-game monkey bracelet description reads, A cute bracelet with a monkey trapped inside a clear ball. Rumors say making it take part in races is a popular gambling sport on Loi. Other games paying tribute isn't the only example of Super Monkey Ball's impact. The games were also used to test the efficiency of surgical doctors. Florida Hospital Celebration Health conducted a series of experiments where over 300 physicians played Super Monkey Ball 2 before performing simulated laparoscopic surgery. Dr. James Rosser, the general surgeon behind the research project, found that surgeons who warmed up to the game were more efficient and were able to suppress errors. Additionally, he discovered that surgeons who played video games in the past for more than 3 hours per week made 37% fewer errors were 27% faster and scored 26% better overall than surgeons who had never played video games. Did you know? Rumors began circulating about a successor to the struggling Sega Saturn as early as 1995, less than a year after the Saturn's release. Lockheed Martin, who had worked with Sega on arcade boards, was said to be working on a more powerful version of the Saturn. They allegedly submitted a number of designs over the next few years, but Sega became impatient and decided to design a new system themselves. Nvidia also approached Sega, hoping to work on their new console. Their first video card, the NV1, was based on Saturn hardware. While it was powerful, it was unorthodox and difficult to develop games with. Sega gave Nvidia a chance, demanding they produce a working prototype of their hardware. When Nvidia's Saturn V08 chip returned a blank screen during the presentation, Sega dropped them on the spot. Sega's next strategy was an unconventional risk. They approached both the Japanese company Videologic and the American-based 3DFX and hired them to develop new hardware. Their projects were codenamed White Belt and Black Belt respectively, as they were intended to deliver the knockout blow that Sega needed. The two teams were effectively in competition with one another, although neither of them knew it. The Japanese team was led by Hideki Sato, who had designed the Genesis. Their project White Belt was later renamed Dural, after the Virtua Fighter character. Its final codename was Katana. The White Belt team used Videologic's Power VR2 GPU, which was an appealing solution due to its high performance at low cost. Additionally, NEC, the 
company manufacturing the chip were Japanese. Meanwhile, 3DFX were working on their version of the hardware, codenamed Black Belt. Sega partnered with Microsoft, who designed the console's OS, or operating system. Because of this partnership, the Black Belt was easy to program for, which corrected one of the Saturn's biggest flaws. The reception to this deal was positive, with many expressing relief that Sega were towing the industry line with their new console. However, success bred its own problems. 3DFX received a lot of positive attention for their powerful graphics chips, and the company soon decided to go public. They released an IPO, an intent of public offering, to let the public buy stocks in their company. To comply with US law, they had to disclose the details of their work with Sega, including details of Sega's new secret project. Sega would eventually choose to go with Videologic's design over 3DFX's, a decision that caused some members of Sega of America to quit in protest. Some speculate that 3DFX going public created friction between the two companies, although the ex-president of Sega America, Bernie Stolar, denies this. In retrospect, he felt that Sega should have gone with the 3DFX hardware, but he explained Japan wanted the Japanese version and Japan won. 3DFX losing the Sega project caused the stock to plummet by 43%. They filed a lawsuit against Sega claiming that they had been misled. They accused Sega of improper conduct for secretly pitting 3DFX and Videologic against one another, resulting in a lawsuit which was settled out of court. Electronic Arts, who were historically Sega's allies, chose not to support the Dreamcast. Though EA owned stock in 3DFX, ex-Vice President Bing Gordon denied that the lawsuit affected relationships between Sega and EA. However, he admitted that the decision to choose Videologic confused him. He said, If Sega had picked the direct competitor to 3DFX at the time, it would have been fine. But they picked someone we had never heard of. It was somebody's friend of somebody's friend at a Japanese country club. According to Gordon, EA distanced themselves from the console for a number of reasons. Developers had little enthusiasm for the Videologic chipset. Sega were indecisive about including a modem, and Sega's financial situation meant that they couldn't afford to give EA the discounted licensing deal that they'd grown used to. Ex-president of Sega America, Bernie Stolar, had a different account of EA and Sega's relationship. He claims that EA demanded exclusivity on sports games in exchange for their support. However, Sega had just purchased visual concepts for $10 million, and their sports games were a key part of Sega's Dreamcast strategy. Stolar offered EA third-party exclusivity, and later, Sega Japan would try to entice the company with lower royalties. EA, however, stuck to their decision and turned their back on the Dreamcast. Sega had a much stronger relationship with Microsoft. After their work on the Black Belt's OS fell through, Microsoft again approached the company, offering to port Windows CE to the console as an optional OS. Windows CE was widely considered to be less versatile than the native OS, but Stolar was convinced Microsoft had ulterior motives, saying they got to learn the business and then walk away. The branding company Interbrand went through 5,000 potential names for the console. They eventually settled on Dreamcast, a portmanteau of Dream and Broadcast. Despite all of its problems, it looked like the Dreamcast was going to be the hit that Sega needed. The Dreamcast's American launch on September 9, 1999 was huge. The console sold a record 225,132 units in its first day, and cleared 1 million units in 11 weeks. But this winning streak was short-lived. Sony unveiled 
unveiled the PlayStation 2 in March 1999, during the Dreamcast's Japanese launch window. Lingering doubts about Sega carried over from their failed consoles, which led many to see the PlayStation 2 as a much safer purchase. Though Sega claimed it was to promote the launch of their Sega Net service, the Dreamcast price was lowered to $149 in the face of this fierce competition. Sega intended to rely on software sales to make a profit. Unfortunately for Sega, it was very easy to play pirated games on the Dreamcast. The console used Sega's proprietary GD-ROM discs, which had three tracks. The first contained text files with licensing information, and the second contained an audio track that warned the user not to insert it into a CD player. The last track was the game itself. To prevent piracy, the table of contents on the disc only mentioned the first two tracks, so the final track would be skipped if inserted into a PC. To dump the game's data for copying, all the pirate had to do was swap the discs without the computer knowing, thus skipping the table of contents. While the Dreamcast would check for authenticity while reading the disc, hackers found an easy workaround by using the console's MILCD feature. MILCD, or Music Interactive Live CD, was another proprietary format intended to add multimedia capabilities to music CDs. This basically meant that MILCD added features such as enhanced menus, internet capabilities, and video to music albums and singles. The format was unsuccessful as no major music labels were willing to back it, resulting in just eight discs being released in Japan. However, pirates could trick the console into booting illegally copied discs by posing them as MILCDs instead of GD-ROMs. Later versions of the Dreamcast had the MILCD feature disabled to prevent this, but by then it was too late. In September of 2000, Sega of America executives Peter Moore and Belfield came to the conclusion that the company had to withdraw from the console market. The duo prepared a Manifesto of the Future, which they presented to Sega's Japanese higher-ups in a meeting that same month. Though Microsoft had not yet announced the Xbox, Moore and Belfield were aware of their intentions to enter the gaming industry as other Sega executives had speculated. However, this meeting was the first time that Sega's Japanese leadership were told of the impending competition from Microsoft. When Moore and Belfield told them that the Dreamcast had to be discontinued, the Japanese executives walked out of the meeting, a very rude gesture in Japan. However, some ex-Sega staff, such as founder David Rosen, thought that the company ought to have withdrawn drawn from the hardware race a lot sooner. In an interview with Next Generation magazine, he said, I've always felt that it was a bit of a folly for them to be limiting their potential to Sega hardware. Sega announced that they would be restructuring to become a platform-agnostic third-party publisher in January of 2001. The Dreamcast was dropped to $99.95 on February 4th to expedite Sega's departure from the hardware business, and was formally discontinued on March 31st. The console had dropped further to a mere $49 by the end of 2001 as Sega tried to clear their stock. Sega's chairman, Iseo Okawa, approached Bill Gates numerous times to ask if it was possible to make the Xbox backwards compatible with the Dreamcast, allowing Sega fans to migrate to a new console. While these negotiations fell through, Sega maintained a close relationship with Microsoft, signing an 11-game deal for the Xbox. Okawa returned his stock in Sega to the company and donated 85 billion yen, roughly $737 million at the time, to keep Sega afloat. He passed away soon thereafter of 
of a heart failure in March 2001. Before it was discontinued, Sega tried to keep the Dreamcast afloat in other ways. Sega stated that they would talk about DVD playback in early 2000, hoping to mitigate backlash from the announcement that the PS2 would play DVDs out of the box. At E3 2000, Sega showed off the Dreamcast DVD player. However, Sega never addressed the DVD player after this, and many in the industry speculated that the DVD player was simply an empty plastic shell. Sega also planned to release a VMU MP3 player that could hold over an hour of 128 kilobytes per second MP3 music. Sega had apparently partnered with the online store mp3.com, but the device never came to fruition. Did you know? Decisions made by Sega for the Saturn actually helped both of Sega's competitors. When the Saturn was being developed, Sega of America president Tom Kalinske was concerned about the system's specs. And during this time, two different companies offered to work with Sega to resolve their concerns. These were Silicon Graphics Incorporated, aka SGI, and Sony. Kalinske met with SGI founder Jim Clark, who pitched their new energy-efficient chips. Kalinsky then presented these chips to Sega of Japan, who declined based on the cost and size of the chips. Although no deal was made, Kalinsky appreciated the work SGI had done, and suggested to Clark that he approach Nintendo with the chips. Nintendo ended up accepting SGI's offer, which helped them to create the Nintendo 64. When Sony approached Sega, they proposed a collaboration on a disc-based console. The two companies had a shared enemy in Nintendo, as Nintendo had spurned Sony by abruptly cancelling a deal for Sony to make a disc peripheral for the Super Nintendo. Sony's Ken Kutaragi and Sega's Tom Kalinske were enthusiastic about the team-up, but president of Sega Enterprises Hayao Nakayama was unimpressed. He declined the deal due to Sony's inexperience in the console market. Afterwards, Sony decided to enter the console race independently with the PlayStation. Sony also poached many of Sega's top staff, such as Kalinsky's right-hand man, Steve Race, who would offer them valuable insights into Sega's strategies. If this wasn't bad enough, Kalinsky was right to be anxious about the Saturn. Sega thought they'd have the late 1994 launch window all to themselves, but in November 1993, Sony announced they'd be launching the PlayStation around the same time. News of the PlayStation's impressive 3D graphics allegedly terrified Sega, and led to Nakayama demanding a second CPU to be added to the Saturn. This second CPU would be to boost the console's 2D and 3D capabilities so that it could compete with Sony. Such a huge upset so late in production led to doubts about the system making its launch date. Not only this, but the dual processors made the Saturn difficult to develop for. At the time, Sega had two consoles in development, one codenamed Jupiter and one codenamed Saturn. Jupiter was intended to be a cartridge-based alternative to the Saturn that shared many of the same specifications, but it was dropped to make way for yet another console project. A group of Sega employees attending CES in January 1994 were invited to a conference call with Nakayama. He demanded an immediate response to Atari's Jaguar, instructing the team to create an upgrade for the Genesis. The decision seemed to make sense, as delays looked likely for the Saturn, and the Genesis was still performing well in America. This upgrade would come to be known as Mars, and would eventually be released as the Sega 32X. 
In practice, however, the 32X only ended up hampering the Saturn's launch. The two consoles shared a lot of hardware, including their Hitachi SH2 processors. This led to shortages, with many of the chips intended for the 32X being used instead for the production of more Saturn consoles. Another problem was the launch window for the two consoles. The 32X launched in November 1994 in the West, the same month that the Saturn launched in Japan. This eroded goodwill towards Sega, with consumers wondering why they should buy the 32X when the Saturn's launch was imminent. In the words of ex-Sega employee Scott Bayliss, it made us look greedy and dumb to consumers. The move also confused developers, who had to choose between developing for the peripheral or for the Saturn. The US release of the Saturn was intended to be on Saturday, September 2nd, 1995, dubbed Saturn Day by Sega. However, they ended up launching much, much earlier, announcing a surprise release on May 11, the first day of E3. The Saturn had been performing well in Japan since its release in November 1994. Its advantages were clear, it had a roster of strong titles, with Virtua Fighter in particular being the most popular arcade game in Japan. It had also launched ahead of the PlayStation. Nakayama hoped to recreate the same ingredients for success in America, and instructed Kalinske to announce the console's launch date. Kalinske opposed the decision, but was told he had no choice in the matter, so the announcement was made. Releasing the console so early gave magazines and retailers no time to publicize the launch, making it hard to advertise. Sega also had to choose only a few retailers to receive the console at first because of limited stock, which upset some of the other retailers. KB Toys in particular refused to stock the system in response. Many attribute the Saturn's poor performance to its lack of mainline Sonic platformer, such as the cancelled Sonic Extreme. The game had a tumultuous development. The project started at Sega Technical Institute as a side-scroller for the Genesis, but it was soon moved to the 32X under the working title Sonic Mars. When the 32X flopped, the team were told to shift their focus to the Saturn. The pressure was immense, and the team chewed through many members. They split into two groups, one to create the game's engine and levels on PC, and the other, known as Team Condor, to port the game directly onto the Saturn. The team quickly encountered issues with the 3D perspective, and to combat these issues, they employed a unique fisheye camera that would warp the playfield over a sphere, giving a greater field of view. Unfortunately, Nakayama was so displeased with their efforts that he took one look at the game before storming out of the building. He instructed them to rebuild the game around the boss engine, the only part he liked. Sega wanted the game to be released in Christmas 1996. To help meet this deadline, the team requested to use the engine and dev tools for Nights into Dreams programmed by Yuji Naka. Permission was granted and they began to familiarize themselves with the technology, but this precious time was ultimately wasted. Yuji Naka had not been consulted about the decision and was furious when he found out. Fueled by the rivalry between Sega of Japan and America, he threatened to quit if they continued using the engine. Despite all this scrambling, the team were miraculously able to find a foothold. Despite this, Sonic Extreme was officially cancelled almost as soon as they solidified their level creation tool. Designer Christian Sen believed that with the assets and working creation tools, he and programmer Ofa Alon could have finished the game by themselves in 6-12 weeks. The Saturn version of the game was handled by Chris Coffin, who was so dedicated to finishing the project that he cancelled his lease and moved his belongings into the office. Coffin almost drove himself into the ground, catching pneumonia as a result of his intense work schedule. 
To make up for the lack of Sonic, Sega tried out other mascots to fill the spot. This included real-time associate Bug, where a Hollywood acting insect accepts a film in which his girlfriend is kidnapped. Bug received generally positive reviews, but was heavily criticised for bringing nothing new to the genre, and attempted to copy Sonic's bad boy persona. The game was even praised by film director Steven Spielberg, who claimed, This is the character that is going to do it for the Saturn. A Bug 2 was also released, but to far less favourable reviews and sales. Kalinsky's disagreements with Sega Japan's policies also led to his departure in 1996. He was replaced by ex-Sony employee Bernie Stolar, who took a controversial stance on the Saturn. He infamously declared at E3 1997 that Saturn is not our future, and decided to reinforce quality over quantity. This meant holding back the localization of many Japanese games, particularly ones that were less likely to succeed in the Western market. The Saturn went through a number of models. A white model was released in Japan in 1996. The new colour scheme, as well as the lowered price point, was intended to make the console appeal to women and children. Another unreleased Saturn model was discovered in 2013, codenamed Pluto. The console was posted on the Assembler Games forums by a user claiming to have worked at Sega. The Pluto included a built-in Netlink modem for online play. In today's episode, we'll be exploring more trivia from one of Sega's most beloved consoles, the Sega Genesis, also known as the Mega Drive. We all know that Sega's success was helped in no small part by the creation of their iconic mascot, Sonic the Hedgehog. However, one iconic character from the series wasn't initially planned. After the first game on the console became a smash hit, Sega unsurprisingly requested a sequel from the original team. One of the fundamental elements that developer Yuji Naka wanted to be included was some form of multiplayer. Originally conceived as a competitive racing mode, it eventually evolved into what they referred to as a 1.5-player co-op mode too. For this addition, the team needed to come up with a new character, eventually resulting in the creation of Tails' Miles Prower. However, to begin with, this character was not a fox, but a tanuki, otherwise known as a Japanese raccoon dog. The initial designs were based on a UFO catcher plush doll, but the design was too clumsy. The decision to change the second character's species was made due to Nintendo having close ties to the Tanuki at the time, with Tanukis appearing in Super Mario Bros. 3 as a power-up for Mario. To give this Fox character more personality, a second tail was added. Making a character for any game can take time, and while most companies follow standard practices when including characters they don't own the rights to, this isn't always the case. This process can sometimes be overlooked, causing problems for companies. Sega referenced characters from other media in their initial release of Revenge of Shinobi, with one boss fight featuring Spider-Man, who, after enough damage, would transform into Batman. The boss fight is implied to be against a ninja capable of shape-shifting, not the actual characters. After this initial publication of the game, a revision was made and released again as version 1.01. 1 
this time altering the appearance of Batman into a demon with wings, with a close resemblance to the titular character from the manga series Devilman. This wouldn't be the only revision made, however. Revision 1.02 changed Spider-Man's appearance to more closely resemble the character, and included a copyright notice for Marvel Entertainment after Sega obtained a license to the character for other titles on the console. This change also altered the fight so that, upon being defeated, Spider-Man wouldn't shapeshift. He would flee instead, implying he was the actual character and no longer a shapeshifter. After the license for the character expired, another version was made for the Wii Virtual Console. This version changed Spider-Man to have a pink costume instead, making him a totally different and unique character. This 1.04 version is now used for all re-releases of the title. The reason for Spider-Man's original appearance in the game was explained by Nori Yoshioba, who said, Sega had already acquired copyright permission for the Spider-Man arcade game they were developing. We were actually asked by Sega to include Spider-Man as part of the promotional effort for that game. In that case, we were actually told to make him look more like Spider-Man. Other characters were also altered in these subsequent versions. In the game's initial release, enemies with flamethrowers were named Rocky in the Japanese manual, and took on the appearance of Rambo, two characters portrayed by Sylvester Stallone. After the first update, their design was changed to feature sunglasses and male pattern baldness. The boss of Round 7 was also changed, with the original release being a representation of Godzilla until it was changed in Revision 3 to simply remove his skin. Speaking of legal changes, one title released by Sega had the license changed after creative differences between then-Sega studio Camelot and Climax Entertainment. Landstalker, the treasures of King Knoll, wasn't initially created as a new property, and was actually intended to be the third entry in the Shining Force franchise, before Shining Force 2 under the name Shining Rogue. Fans of Shining Force have noted that many references to Shining Force can be found throughout the Landstalker series, such as Yogurt's Ring making an appearance in the Dreamcast sequel, Time Stalkers. Going back to Landstalker, there's actually a scene which was cut from international releases. At one point in the game, it's possible to stumble across Kayla enjoying a nice, relaxing bath, before she offers Nigel the opportunity to join her. Though given the option to say yes, Friday will prevent the player from doing so. While this scene was cut during localization, the scene was still translated in the game's code, but was impossible to encounter due to a maid being placed in the bathroom's doorway. By removing the character in the game's code, or by way of a cheat device, it's possible to still gain access and sneak a quick peek. Sound effects are another important part of any good title, though their creation and implementation are often overlooked. With Sega's Golden Axe, it appears that those in charge of creating the death sounds took inspiration from classic 1980s action films. In the Mega Drive version, one of the death cries is actually just a digitized version of a scream from Conan the Barbarian. It wouldn't just be first-party Sega games found to be lifting content from strange places. Metal Fangs, by Victor Musical Industries, was released exclusively in Japan, following a group of cyberpunk-styled races. Hardcore Gaming 101 has uncovered a major inspiration for many of the game's characters, the music industry. Many portraits were simply traced from photos of iconic musicians, and given the cybernetic treatment, 
Some of these may be speculation, but the website suggests the images include Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols, Madonna, David Bowie, Angus Young of ACDC, MC Hammer, Robert Smith from The Cure, Morrissey, and Adam Horowitz from The Beastie Boys. Another game on the system with an interesting musical reference, amongst other things, is Contra Hardcore. This music reference appears in a secret ending found during Stage 3, after talking to a man on top of a climbable wall. The man offers the player a chance to participate within the battle arena, where the player will enjoy a remix of Vampire Killer from Konami's other series, Castlevania. Here, three bosses must be defeated. They include a disco robot who after being defeated will explode into fish pastries, a robot zombie dinosaur pushing a carriage holding a machine gun with a large slime monster inside, and a robot brain which can warp around the room. After defeating these bosses, the player is sucked into a magical portal and sent back in time to the Age of Dinosaurs. Several years after, the player finds themselves as the King of Monkeys, before the game's credits roll. Another Mega Drive game which makes reference to another game on the system is Ranger X. In the game's Japanese release, there's a secret easy difficulty mode that can be unlocked by going to the options screen and inputting ABC ABC ABC. Not only does the whole game become significantly easier, but an additional stage is added prior to level 1, which differs from the title's usual dark and moody tones to a more light-hearted parody of several Sega titles like Alex Kidd and Sonic the Hedgehog. Another interesting, and slightly bizarre cheat, comes from the Genesis release of ESPN National Hockey Night. The game contains a cheat that strips the game down to a one-on-one -on -one game of Pong. This can be done by entering BCCC up, down on the main menu. However, the original aesthetic of the classic Pong isn't present. The puck does remain the same, but the paddles have been replaced by two hockey players. If this still resembles Pong just a little bit too much, the player can enter an additional code on the main menu, ACB, up, right, and up, to replace the puck with an octopus for some reason. Fantasy Star 2, the sequel to the Master System classic, has an interesting regional difference. Ustvestia, a piano teacher found in the northwest outskirts of Oputa, will play music for the party, acting as a sound test board so players can listen to the game's soundtrack. He's also capable of teaching the music technique to anyone in the party. In the game's English version, if a male party member wants to learn the skill, Ustvestia will state he looks smart and gives the character a reduced fee of 2,000 compared to the 5,000 he charges for female characters. The Japanese version of the game reveals the reason for this gender disparity. Ustvestia will instead state he looks cute and is openly homosexual. This was altered for the game's English release, possibly to avoid contention from players who find the image of two men having steamy passionate coitus uncomfortable. A character's final name isn't always what was originally planned. There are many reasons for this, but it's often because a more fitting name is decided during development after a team has fleshed out the character. For Streets of Rage, the iconic characters of Axel, Adam, and Blaze didn't just have different names, but also different visual designs. Axel was initially designed as a karate master from Chicago, similar in appearance to Chuck Norris, named Godhand. As the title entered production, his name was changed into Hawk, before finally landing on Axel Stone. 
Adam Hunter was initially conceived as a martial arts expert from London named Blackbird. He was then renamed Wolf during development before the team settled on Adam. And lastly, Pink Typhoon was the name of an adept kung fu master from Hong Kong. This character would eventually become Blaze, continuing to use a name based on an element with Typhoon being water and Blaze being fire. The name of the game itself also changed during its development, with the original working title being D-SWAT. This title was never revealed outside of the development team, but a trace of the setting still remains in the final Streets of Rage release. The original name was a reference to the cyber police force found in the earlier Sega release, E-SWAT. The design of the police car from E-SWAT is still used for the car which rescues the character at the end of Streets of Rage. Golden Axe had its name changed three times during the development of the original arcade version. At first, the team named it Battle Axe, a direct translation of the original Japanese title, Senpu. But this name was already licensed by another company, and thus they couldn't use it for the game. The studio then suggested the name Broadaxe, as it was very close to the original Battle Axe name, which they considered to be very cool. The title had no licensing issues, so it was believed it would be used. However, just before development finished, one of the heads at Sega US pushed for the name Golden Axe, as the dwarf, Gilead Thunderhead's axe looked gold in-game. The Golden Axe name has no relation to the original Japanese title, so the team was reluctant to make the change, but with the name becoming a key point of discussion within the US branch of Sega, the Japanese team got on board. To reflect this change in name, they also changed Death Adder's Axe from silver to gold, also adjusting the story to reflect this. However, based on the game's historic success, we've also been told that the owners of the IP are now grateful for these changes. The origin of ToeJam and Earl's names also has a story to it. There are rumours floating around that the titular characters got their name from a miscommunication over the phone during development. However, game designer Greg Johnson revealed to Did You Know Gaming the true tale behind the conception of the Funkadelic duo. The real story is actually that ToeJam and Earl first appeared in a dream I had. I woke up with the idea of two homeboy aliens from the hood introducing themselves. This is true. I got up and I scribbled down the conversation between the two of them. Yo, what's up? This is ToeJam and this is my homeboy, Big Earl. We're aliens from outer space. Say what's up, Earl. Yo, what's up? The next day, I scribbled a little drawing of them onto a napkin. They didn't really change much from that first drawing. A little later, I told Mark about this when we were on a hike on Mount Tam in Marin Country, and he loved the idea, and we started riffing on what Earth would look like to a couple of very cool, funky aliens, and the whole satire thing started to grow. While this story has been confirmed, some mysteries still remain in classic Sega games. In Beyond Oasis, known as Story of Thor outside of the US, there is a very slim chance of a mysterious death cry occurring. Instead of the usual scream of anguish, the player will instead hear what sounds like a woman moaning. It took us 134 attempts to trigger this sound for the video. You're welcome. The sound is also present in the game's sound test menu. The Genesis Sega splash screen was perhaps one of, if not the most iconic of its era. The Sega! startup chant, which first played at the beginning of Sonic the Hedgehog, took up a whopping one-eighth of the entire game cartridge's memory. The decision to include this was made near the end of the game's development, and the iconic chant replaced a previous idea, which was grandiose but simply not possible at the time. Specifically, an animated sound test menu, which would have included members of Sonic's band, like Vector the Crocodile. Plenty of developers took the opportunity to have some fun with this boot sequence. 
In the case of Vectorman, it's possible for the player to take control of the titular character on this screen. If they proceed to shoot at the top right corner of the screen, a hidden TV can be destroyed. This then releases an orb power-up which, when fired, causes the background to stop moving and the light of the central Sega logo to go out. Anyone familiar with Sega will tell you the company's history is a rocky one. It was among the biggest hardware developers to come out of Japan in the 1990s. But when consoles turned to disc-based technology, their sales began to falter. Sega's final attempt at a home console was the Sega Dreamcast, a system that still holds a cult following to this day. One of the last games developed by Sega for the device was a love letter to fans filled with the characters and charm that Sega was known for. They called it Sega Gaga. Released in March 2001, Sega Gaga is a bizarre RPG that referenced not only the company itself, but also a large number of Sega's games and characters. The name is a play on the term being Gaga for something, and in particular, being Gaga for Sega. It was chosen in place of the name Sega Sega, as they hoped that reducing the focus on the Sega name would be less intrusive. Often abbreviated to SGGG, the title was directed by Tez Okano, who would later go on to create Gunstar Superheroes and Astro Boy Omega Factor. Although the game was primarily an RPG, it covers a mixture of genres. It defines itself as a Sega simulator, with the game's plot and story loosely based on the reality of what happened to Sega. In the game's story, Sega is struggling financially against its leading competitor, Dogma. Sega's world marketplace share is a mere 3% and without any signs of improvement. To fix this, the company plans to get kids from the street and introduce them to the company in the hopes that their management can bring the company back to its former glory. The player takes on the role of one of those kids. Taro's Sega. During the initial part of the game, the player is tasked with battling employees from various development studios within the company. This stage of the game talks about how the giant doors of the building are there to keep the employees in rather than keeping everybody else out. The high stress levels of developing games has caused them to become subhuman, something that the game proclaims is the unfortunate truth of the games industry. Nobody has entered the development room in 20 years, and so none of the company's higher-ups really know what is happening at Sega. Sometimes they receive a finished product in exchange for food and water, but eventually somebody has to go in and crack the whip. This initial part of the game plays out like a standard RPG, with each studio being a maze filled with a variety of enemies. Some playful enemy designs are thrown into the mix, ranging from literal cut-out photographs of real developers within Sega, bizarre creatures and various mecha forms of Ralph Macchio, the actor for Daniel LaRusso in The Karate Kid. Unlike typical RPGs, battles don't unfold by exchanging physical attacks. Instead, the fight is an exchange of verbal abuse by commanding your enemy and insulting them. Telling them that they will never have a girlfriend or that their product can't make any money, you will eventually weaken their will and defeat them. With only a single party member and enemy in battle at a time, this is a fairly simple process. There are a number of special attacks that can be used, however, with interesting and unique results. The consequences of failing to defeat an opponent doesn't result in a game over, but instead removes a month of development time from the company, something that is extremely detrimental for the latter part of the game. After taking down an enemy, it's possible that they will want to join you on your quest and will try to negotiate for a job. This is performed through a 10 second segment of exchanging questions in quick succession, including what sort of salary they can expect to receive. 
After the process of hiring, the game moves into its advertised simulation segment. Each studio brought on board is made up of seven members, three programmers, three designers, and a director. These employees make up the total stats for a studio, providing them with stamina, creativity, skill, and speed. This leaves the player with a number of decisions, such as whether they want to create a skilled team to produce a few high-quality products, or just push out fast shovelware in a hope that it will increase profits. There are a total of four studios that can be taken on board. After three years with the company, the game ends, and different endings can be achieved depending on how well you performed. The only way to fail the game entirely is by running out of funds before the three years are over. Dialogue between characters shows the real-life dilemmas that face game developers. The hero wants to create innovative and fresh titles that will attract new customers and help the company thrive. But many will say how such things are hard to achieve and the company's financial security is more important. The game's most well-received element is its homage to Sega's past. With constant cameo appearances, retro music, references to other Sega games, and even bizarre mini-games that throw back to previous Sega titles, there is a huge amount of fan service for Sega veterans. While we doubt many of you will ever get the chance to play Sega Gaga, we're giving you a warning that this next part of the video details the ending of the game. So if you don't want it to be spoiled, skip to the time displayed on screen. In the game's climax, the player straps himself into an R720 unit, a parody of the Sega R360 arcade unit, which results in him being shot into space. With the evil Dogma Corporation performing a hostile takeover, a huge cast of Sega characters are sent out to battle them. This includes characters like Sonic, Tails, Rystar, a variety of Fantasy Star characters, and the Bad Brothers from the first stage of Golden Axe. The player is pitted against a barrage of enemies in a shoot-em-up style game. The boss of this stage is a continually upgrading piece of Sega hardware, which after each form is destroyed will morph into the next console generation. This segment is similar to Thunder Force, particularly with the inclusion of an additional vessel reminiscent of the ship's design in Thunder Force 5. Sega Gaga's director, Tez Okano, would later go on to work on the Thunder Force sequel, Thunder Force 6, which launched on the PlayStation 2. This game was originally in development for the Sega Dreamcast, however, and some of the original assets are used in this final scene. Though the Dreamcast launched to some success in Japan in 1998, their competition was fierce. The impact of the Dreamcast hitting the market was short-lived, and soon after its launch, sales figures began to tank. As a result of some internal arguments, the company decided that the console market was not a secure financial option for the company, and that they should instead dedicate their efforts into becoming a leading third-party developer, which allowed them to work without console restrictions. A result of this internal arguing was lots of staff shuffling, and people both internally and externally thinking that the company was headed to its own demise. When Okano initially pitched the title to Sega's management, many believed his proposal to be a joke. After a second round of fund-seeking for the project, it was approved by Hisao Oguchi, the president of the now-defunct Sega development team Hitmaker. Okano estimated the total budget for the game to be less than a hundredth of Shenmue, which is 
is known for being a huge financial burden on Sega with a budget of over $70 million. One factor that helped the game's reduced production cost came from Toei Animation, who gave a discount to the developers on all animated footage. Sega Gaga released at a time when the Dreamcast future was bleak. Sega's schedule for upcoming high-quality releases was looking sparse, and they needed to do something that would bring in revenue. Just two months before the game was released, Sega announced the discontinuation of the Dreamcast. At this stage, Sega Gaga had been in development for two years in secret. Okano was concerned that after development was revealed, anything can happen. This is an important point, as one of the reasons the game was published was because Sega was struggling financially, and they felt that the company wouldn't be portrayed in a negative light within the game. When Sega Gaga was initially conceived, there were around 300 copyright issues that needed to be resolved within the company. This was later brought down to just 100, meaning some of the game's ideas had to be scrapped or changed. These include the idea of having Sega's famous Sega Saturn mascot in the game, Segata Sanchiro, as well as a Ferrari. The franchises that ended up appearing in the game came as a result of their popularity with fans, as well as the availability from a legal perspective. After the game launched, Okano stated that he was given a marketing budget of around $200. Okano spent over half the budget on a wrestling mask in order to hide his identity during signing events he set up at four locations across Akihabara. With support from the head of Sega's PR, Tarashi Takazaki, and Takusasahara from Sega AM3, the game was able to obtain a full-page newspaper article, which helped to increase awareness and popularity for the title. The game launched with respectable sales through Sega's online store, ultimately leading to a full retail release. It's not surprising that the game was never localized, as the target audience was extremely limited even within Japan, never mind the rest of the world. The Dreamcast, which had already been discontinued at the time of the game's launch, and Sega's lack of financial stability are both likely contributing factors to the lack of translation. The game also makes heavy use of text, and has a huge volume of characters and cultural elements that simply don't translate well for a Western market. Reworking all of these elements into a narrative that makes sense to Westerners would be time-consuming and expensive. Not only this, but the previously mentioned licensing issues would need to be renegotiated all over again for different markets. Efforts were once made by a group of fans to translate the game, but with no news coming out for almost four years at the time of this video, it's unknown whether the game will ever be playable in English. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.